Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices, Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Those of you who have attended the IH convention for many years will undoubtedly recognize the name Don Wardlaw. He's been with the Lord now for many years, but his ministry lives on. This sermon was preached in 1988 at Sea Breeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida, and it's titled, Worship. You're sure to enjoy this excellent message. Keep passing it on and on. passage of scripture that is familiar to people who attend church or to people who read the Bible. <clears throat> it's been preached on from most pulpits from in America. And I would like for us to look at this section again this morning with the idea again of worship. And I think in this particular chapter, especially the first eight verses, we find some keys to acceptable worship of God. This is Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6. We begin to read with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs, from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips. Thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I. Send me. May God's blessing be added to the reading of his word this morning. 
We know Isaiah as a prophet. We have read his, his words, not only his words that denounce sin and pronounce woe on the disobedient, but his words that present to us in Old Testament form perhaps the clearest picture of the Messiah that we have in the Old Testament Scripture. In fact, Christ so fills this prophecy that the book of Isaiah is sometimes called the gospel of the Old Testament. Christ is everywhere through this, this uh, book, even though it was written many hundreds of years before the coming of the Messiah. I think the person of Isaiah is interesting. And I think to understand the, the significance of his prophecy, we must understand something about the man. Isaiah was a prince. He undoubtedly was related directly to the, the kingly line in Israel. He was a man who was familiar with the worship ceremonies and forms that God had given to Israel to observe. You'll remember that God pronounced uh, that there were, there were certain things that they were to do. There were altars to be built. There were sacrifices to be made. There were uh, certain rituals to be observed in the worship of God by the Israelites. And so uh, these would be performed in the temple during the time of Isaiah's life. The lamb would be brought annually. The high priest would take of the blood of that lamb and would go through the veil into the Holy of Holies, there to make atonement for the sins of the people as well as his own sins. There would be daily sacrifices. There would be daily offerings made. And there would be a continual fire in the altar of burnt offering. He understood the ritual. He understood the ceremony. And of course, living in Jerusalem, being of the princely line, he would have access to educational opportunities and cultural advantages that perhaps were not afforded to uh, shepherd boys like David or other individuals of his day. He was a regal, royal individual. I like to think of Isaiah as being a stately, uh, princely sort of an individual. But this picture that we are given to, to enjoy and contemplate in Isaiah chapter 6 brings us face to face with probably the most climatic time in his life. It brings us to the point in the history of his life, the watershed of his life, as it were. This individual who comes to the temple, he tells us it's in the year that King Uzziah died. Now we understand that from the history of Israel, that King Uzziah was a very dearly loved king. He was a man who reigned a number of years in, on the throne of Judah. And when he came to uh, his older years, he was lifted up in pride. And instead of letting the priest do his work and taking upon himself only the work of leading the people as a king, he said, I'm going to take a censer. 
And I'm going to do the work of the priest. And he presumed to go before the Lord as only a priest should go before the Lord. While he was in the, temp in the temple, uh, the priest or the prophet came to where he was, pronounced God's judgment upon the king. The king was smitten with leprosy. Uzziah, no doubt, was a relative of Isaiah and undoubtedly was one of his heroes. And I think that's one of the reasons why he says in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. His hero is dead. The one in whom he had had, had placed confidence and trust, the one in whom he had placed his faith, now has become disobedient. There is a coffin containing the body of a king. But even though the king of Israel is dead, the king of heaven lives. And into this kind of setting, and with this kind of background, this young prince, disappointed and disillusioned, and perhaps discouraged and disheartened, comes into the temple to worship God. But when he comes on this particular occasion, there is something unusual that happens. Something happens he has never seen before. Something transpires that changes his life forever. I believe it's the kind of thing that ought to happen in your life and in mine. Not simply that we would go to a physical place and have a vision. I'm not pleading for that. But there is something about what happened and what happened to the prophet and what he saw that is important for you and I as Christians, as believers, as people who love the Lord. For he says that in this year, in this time, I went to the house of God and I saw the Lord. It seems to me that even though this comes a few chapters into his prophecy, this is, this is the watershed. This is the point of, of decision in the time of the prophet Isaiah. When an earthly king is dead, for the first time he is introduced to the king of the universe, the one who never changes, the one who never dies. He sees that there is an eternal one. There is one who sits on an eternal throne, who never changes, who is always regal, who is always royal, who always acts as a king should act. And when he sees him, he sees him in his holiness. He sees God in his glory. He is surrounded by exalted worship. There are worshipers around the throne. And as Isaiah sees this tremendous vision, he catches a glimpse of God. And he sees what is happening around the throne of God. Seraphims are there. They are... They have uh, wings. They fly. They are able to move about. With two, they cover the face. With two, they cover the feet. And with two, they fly. But they are uttering words. And when they utter words, they are simply the same word three times. Holy, holy, holy. Now Isaiah is a prophet. Isaiah is familiar with worship. That is, he is familiar with form. He understands burning altars. He understands smoking censers. 
He understands the rules of religion. He understands something about how one goes about approaching God. But when he sees holy beings surrounding the throne of an infinitely holy God, he understands that something has to happen in his own nature for him to be able to join in this chorus of the seraphims. How important it is that you and I come to this point in our life. We come to this, this point in our spiritual experience, as it were, that we come into the very presence of God until we are struck with the same sense of awe and the same sense of reverence that came into the life of this prophet. You folks know who have been listening to me preach for these years that I'm tremendously concerned about us as a people. We profess to be holiness people who profess grace and who profess that God can do so much for us. And I believe we have a message that is biblical and true, and I believe we believe it. But I am concerned that we, we not come to the place where we sense this, this sense of familiarity that we understand that the God we serve is high and lofty and holy. I would not, uh, I would not uh, have you begin to think that God is so far off that we cannot approach him. Thank God for one who is near at hand. But friend, in his awesome character, God is awesomely, wonderfully, terribly holy. And when Isaiah comes to this, this awareness... And I think that's the word that I'd like to have you remember this morning. This, this tremendous awareness of God. Listen, friends, there are people who have been to church Sunday after Sunday. There are people who read their Bible. There are people who at times pray who have never come to the point of really being aware of God. Really understanding, becoming confronted with God like this man was. Friend, this is a time when Isaiah became aware of a holy, majestic, supreme ruler of the universe. And when he sees him, he stands in awe. He becomes aware of the holiness of the Almighty. Now, I'm not much for a lot of ceremony. I get real uncomfortable when things get real formal. And, uh, but I am, neither am I pleading for, for just a lot of unnecessary things to happen. But friends, I believe that there is something about the holiness of God which sets him so apart. Theologians, when they talk about this, use an interesting term. They talk about the otherness of God. I wish I knew how to adequately express what is being pictured for us in this lesson this morning. The otherness of God, the complete otherness. When he saw him high and lifted up, transcended over everything and everyone, all of creation, all of the, all of the, the beauties and the glories and all that exists 
in the creation of all of eternity. Friend, there is a regal, royal, holy one who sits on the throne of it all. Amen. And when we see him in his glory, when Isaiah saw him in his glory, in his holiness, he became aware of the awesome presence of God. He became aware of God's holiness and it filled him with awe. I mentioned before that you and I need to learn, when we learn, come to worship God, we need to learn who He is and what He is. And friend, I believe that in our worship there ought to be this sense of awe. I, uh, I'm concerned about how we talk about God. I... Uh, I sometimes hear people talking about the man upstairs. I remember when we first moved to Cooperstown, there was a man who was our neighbor at that time, whom I became acquainted. We used to visit every once in a while. I invited him to church a number of times, and he never quite got to the place where he promised me, but he, he did talk about coming. But he used to talk about how good the man upstairs had been to him. And I hear people talking about the man upstairs. And I wonder if they really understand what they're talking about. I wonder if they've really seen him. I wonder if they've really come in contact with him. It seems to me that when we come in contact, as Isaiah did, in the, with the awesome glory and holiness and beauty and the supremacy of an almighty God, he will not simply be the man upstairs. He will be the regal, royal God of eternity, the one whom we fear, the one whom we bow before. Amen. You know, people can talk so glibly about the Lord, so glibly about God. I read some time ago about an uh, a entertainer who had supposedly had some sort of a religious experience. And uh, she was telling someone about God and this religious experience and she said oh God is just so wonderful now she hadn't had a transformation of life she's still going to the nightclubs and she's still doing all the things that she did before she had her experience now she's just able to talk about the Lord and she talked about what a good pal the Lord was and what a good buddy she'd found in the Lord well friend God is a wonderful friend but he is not your buddy he is not your pal he is transcendent. He is awesomely holy. And you and I will never worship God as we ought until we see Him high and lifted up. Until we come to this sense of awe. Until we see the presence of God in His holiness, in His glory, and in His righteousness, in His transcendence. Amen. I, uh, I think the old Quakers had something worthwhile and worth looking at when they... they uh, and I'm not pleading that we go back to this. We'd uh, have an awful time going back to it. But remember, they used to talk about thee and thou. And uh, when they uh, addressed each other, they would talk about thee. My grandparents were old-fashioned Quakers. And uh, that came out in their language once in a while. They sort of got away from some of that. But I never remember hearing my grandmother and my grandfather pray and using the personal pronoun you when they talked to God 
They simply had such reverence and fear and awe when they prayed. They used those words, thee and thou. And it taught us reverence. It taught us something about the awe and the fear that should be in our hearts toward an almighty God. I believe that's something that what Isaiah felt and what he saw when he saw God high and lifted up. He saw the awesome presence of a holy God. He saw God's transcendence. Now some of these words are 16-cylinder words. Don't be afraid of them. But friend, God is transcendent. He is over all. He is supreme. He is above all. And when we come to worship God, we are worshiping the transcendent one. There is no one higher. There is no one greater. Use all the superlatives you want to use. But friend, when you have exhausted the language and when you have run out of adjectives to describe, he is still transcendent above everything. He is still the one at whose knee every, every, or whose presence every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. And when we come to worship him, we are not simply coming to become familiar with him in that sense. We are coming to the one who is transcendent. And when we keep his awesome holiness and his mighty transcendence in mind, I think we begin to approach the idea that Isaiah had when he worshipped God in the temple on this particular day. He became aware of God's awesome authority. He saw him on the throne. Just this past week in my devotions, I read the section again where Solomon built his house. As I remember, he was about seven years building the temple. He was a few more years than that building his own home. Must have been something. His throne must have been gorgeous almost beyond description. It was overlaid with the finest gold. It had steps leading up to it. And when you approach that throne, the throne of Solomon in Israel, you would come between lions that were on the steps of his throne, chained to the steps on either side of the ascent to the throne where Solomon sat were lions. There would, be, there would be people who would be waiting for his every whisper would become their command. He was supreme in his authority. And that kind of an idea came down through the kingly line to the days of Isaiah. And when Isaiah thinks about regal authority, when he thinks about authority, he thinks about Isaiah. He thinks about the royal throne that he has seen so many times. But now when he sees God sitting, he sees God sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Not only is he holy, not only is he transcendent in him, and here's all of the authority of the universe. Thousands of angels stand banked in corridors waiting to do his command. 
All of the regal authority of the universe is invested in this one whom he sees sitting on the throne. He sees regal authority. He sees tremendous, awesome authority when he comes here. And ladies and gentlemen, when you and I come to worship God, remember we are coming to the supreme authority in the universe. We come to the King of kings and Lord of lords. His word is absolute authority. Amen. I've mentioned before from this pulpit, and I simply repeat myself for emphasis, not just because I'm getting old, but for emphasis, that God did not send Moses off the mountain with ten good ideas. And this book is not simply a book of recommendations. They are commandments. And they are commandments that come to us from the highest authority in the universe. And I sometimes wonder if the world understands that. I sometimes wonder if the church world understands it. We are not left to edit God. It is not our prerogative to take our red pencil to what God has said, friend, when he has spoken, that is the absolute authority. And when we come to worship him, we must remember that in his, the awareness of God, our awareness of God, we must be aware that when we come to worship him, we are worshiping the supreme authority of the universe. And friend, you cannot adequately worship the individual or the thing to which you do not give supreme allegiance. So when we come to God to worship, we come to God submitting to his royal regal authority over our lives, over our conduct, over our thoughts, over everything there is about us. He must be supreme in his authority. When we come to worship him, if we worship as we ought, we submit ourselves to his government. Remember, friends, the Bible tells us the carnal mind will not submit to the authority of God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. So something has to happen to you and me as we come to worship God. If we worship Him as we ought, we must be aware of His supreme authority. And that leads me as it led Isaiah to notice that when he saw God, he became aware not only of God's amazing character and of His transcendent awesomeness and of his absolute authority he came to be aware of his own sinfulness and I think it's interesting the way he prays here and what he uses the language he uses he doesn't begin to pray Lord I have done these things and I have committed these things he said Lord here's what I am there's something wrong with the way I'm built there's something wrong with the way I am that hinders me from joining with the voices of angelic hosts in heaven in giving glory and praise and honor to the Holy One who inhabits eternity. There's something in my nature. There's something in my being. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. There is something unclean. There is something unholy about me, he says. And ladies and gentlemen, when we come to worship God, when we see Him in His holiness, when we understand His transcendence, when we see His awesome authority, if there is something in our hearts 
that is unlike Him, it hinders us, it will keep us from echoing and re-echoing the praises of the one who is absolutely holy. That's what, that's what inspires his prayer. That's what makes him a seeker after God when he sees the holiness of an almighty God and reflected in that holiness, placed against the bright, blazing light of the holiness of God, he sees his own sinfulness, his own uncleanness. I am a man, he says, of uncleanness. I cannot join my lips. I wish to join with the anthem of heaven, praising the God who is holy. But my lips are unclean. I am unfit to join in that kind of anthem. He prays not concerning what he has done, but what he was. He is unclean in the light of the holiness of God, and his uncleanness causes him pain. I sometimes wonder if the old timers didn't have it right when they called this the mourner's bench. And they talked about people being under the pain of sin. They tell the story of Peter Cartwright, that great Methodist circuit rider of years gone by who was such a power for God. He came to a place on his preaching rounds where they had a young man who had just uh, come from one of the schools of his day and he was a rather prim and proper young fellow, not at all schooled in the ways of the backwoods and he apparently had never really met God as Peter Cartwright and some of those other great Methodist circuit riders had met God. And so when the great Cartwright came, this young man asked Cartwright to preach. And the congregation that night was a great, a man of great stature. He was a man of powerful physique and a man who was powerfully given to sin notorious in the community where he lived. Cartwright preached as only he could preach. Fearlessly he denounced sin in every form he could think of and God helped him. And that man, much to the surprise of most everyone in that congregation, especially the young, the young preacher, not to the surprise of Cartwright, but that great big hulk of a man came to the mourner's bench and began to wail and moan and pray, and cry, and beat his chest, and ask God to forgive him, a low-down, wicked sinner. When Cartwright called the saints in to pray, the young uh, graduate went to the side of this individual and said, now, brother, compose yourself. Compose yourself. Cartwright took his hand and pushed the young preacher away and said, brother, let him pray on. There's no composure where he's going. Let him pray. And he prayed on and confessed his sins. And under the pain of Holy Ghost conviction, he repented of his sins and God wonderfully gave him salvation that night. And when he looked around in his happiness and in his joy of being forgiven, the first one he saw was the little preacher. With a bear hug, he grabbed him and started around the, uh, the church or around the tent or whatever they had up, praising, shouting the high praises of God. 
Cartwright describes it as like seeing a bear take a young child and his legs were flying out on either side of this great hulk of a man while he's praising God and the saints are rejoicing. There is something about seeing the wholeness of God and seeing our own sinfulness that causes us pain. And I am convinced, friends, that only as we see God's wholeness and only as we see our sinfulness which causes us pain to see can we ever come to the place we can really worship. Would to God that we saw more pain among sinners. He saw, he became aware of the cleansing flame. For while he is confessing his own sinful nature, which cannot respond to the holiness of God, an angel is dispatched. He goes to the altar and takes tongs. He does not presume to take that holy fire in his own hands, but he takes tongs and he takes a coal from off the altar of the holy God. Remember that fire is one of the symbols of deity. Our God is a consuming fire. John said of, of Jesus Christ when he has come, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And he takes this live coal from off the altar, comes and places this coal on the unclean lips of a, of a pained prophet and pronounces him clean. Lo, this has touched thy lips Thine iniquity is taken away. Thy sin is purged. And the prophet becomes a worshiper. It is only as we submit to the purging, cleansing blood and fire of the Holy Ghost that you and I can truly, adequately become worshipers. Remember that God has created us to worship. And when he saves us, he saves us to worship. When he cleanses us, he cleanses us to worship. And among everything else we do, in everything we do, ought to be an act of worship. They tell us that Brother Lawrence, whom I mentioned in the previous message when he lay dying, the doctor had pronounced they had done all that they could do. This man who was such an eminent saint groaned. And someone said to him, Brother Lawrence, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing what I've been doing for the last 40 years. I'm worshiping God. They said, Brother Lawrence, you're dying. In a few moments, your life will be gone. You mean to tell us that in your dying moment, you're worshiping? He said, that's what God created me to do. And with my dying breath, I will worship him. 
And when death has released this soul of mine from this tent of clay, I shall go to the place where they worship eternally. God help us to worship. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. Spend pets, I don't want to lose the fire.